0: Well, I have to say thank you to John for stepping in last week, and then also, darn it, John, you preached for 20 minutes and set the expectation whole new a Guest preachers shouldn't go longer, That's a, but you should also go way shorter. Come on, John. But, well, power-packed, just nuggets of wisdom and truth and just poise and composure, which is not surprising. Uh, but I, I think that was John's first sermon. You, I don't think you would know it if you had heard him heard it or listened to it online. If you haven't, I encourage you to. It's under our guest preachers tab on our website about our identity in Christ. And sometimes the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. He did give a weather update, so I was thankful for that as we were out of town in Joseph, Oregon. I believe it was the coldest June 6th on record last Sunday, and forecast shows the rainiest June 13th on record today, if that holds true. So, man, we're just breaking records all over the place, and there's your daily weather report. Let's turn to. Mark chapter 6, as we continue journeying in in this upside-down kingdom message that Jesus ultimately proclaims with His life and ministry, but Mark presents for us. We come now to perhaps the most famous miracle or sign anywhere found in the Gospels. It is the only miracle that is recorded by all four Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The headings in most of your Bibles at mark six verse thirty are would say something to the effect of the feeding of the five thousand Matthew and Mark also record a separate event, the feeding of the four thousand we 'll see that in mark eight. Some have argued that the retell this is just a retelling of the same event with slightly different details but to emphasize an important message which the gospel writers were prone to do at times. They would write thematically more than historically. Others are quite certain this was two very distinct events, which is probably where I land, and it was Jesus who was emphasizing something radically significant, and therefore we are to take notice. I love this story. Plain power and wonder, but also wonderfully powerful symbolism. No doubt many of you have heard a sermon or two preached on this miracle. If you've spent any amount of time in the gathering of the church over the years, or growing up. So let me emphasize what I believe is the main point this morning. But there's some peripherals here that I really want to press into, and if they develop, then I'll bring us back to this passage next week, or perhaps I'll wait until Mark 8 when we can hit some of the peripherals, which I think are overlooked at times because of the main emphasis of the passage, but might also be vital for the ways that we follow Jesus. Let's read this passage. Follow along if you do have your devices or access to the word. Mark six thirty and following. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And so they ran there on foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of them. So when Jesus and the disciples went ashore, they saw the great crowd. But Jesus had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away into the surrounding countryside and the villages by themselves, so they can get something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Oh, shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, Well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves. And gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And so the disciples took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves that day were five thousand men. I think the main point of emphasis is fairly clear. But John's gospel makes it abundantly clear when he records this event. Jesus provides abundantly. That's an understatement, isn't it? It's the title of my sermon. Perhaps a better title would be Jesus, the fulfillment of all things. Or Jesus provides far more than we can ask or imagine. Or the superfluous nature of God revealed in Christ. And none of those would be exaggerations. They're just a mouthful for a sermon title. Jesus does provide in every way. It is his nature. Jesus is fulfilling all things and making clear the completion of the fullness of the story has been foreshadowed for us. From ancient days, Jesus came and fulfilled all that was. And we probably only see in surface and the depth that we could plumb and mine to see the way the story works together and finds its fulfillment in Jesus might take an eternity to discover. In John 6 Jesus connects this event, this miracle, this sign to the ancient days of Israel's story. Perhaps the most formative moment and time for Israel as they were rescued from slavery in Egypt and given the promised land. But there was a 40-year interlude where they were wandering in the desert place, the desolate place, the wilderness. Jesus connects this story, this sign to that one through the record of John. It should not be lost on us that this event happens in the wilderness, in the desolate place. We saw in in Mark chapter 1, the Eremon in Greek. Jesus would withdraw into the Eremon, the desolate place, by himself to pray early in the morning, Mark 1. Jesus confronted Satan in temptation in 40 days of fasting in the Eremon in the desert place, the wilderness, ultimately triumphing over the attacks of the enemy to succumb, to give in to his rule over the rule of, of God. Those 40 days, many believe, are intentionally symbolic for the 40 years of Israel's wandering the desert, where they continue to doubt and dismiss God's promise, to distrust him, to grumble and to complain. And that was the cycle of the story. Jesus was perfectly faithful, redeeming even that too in the time of the wilderness. Throughout the scripture, you can see this storyline of God's intimate connection in presence, formation with his people in the wilderness places, in the desolate times. From Abraham's call and journey and sojourn and development as a nation to the covenant given to him, we see Jacob in fleeing to the desolate place, and meeting God, wrestling him, with him, coming away with both a limp and a blessing, which pretty much summarizes all of our encounters with the holy God. We could go further and see David learning how to lead and to be a shepherd in the desolate place, in the Aramon. It was his formation spiritually. Jesus, we see again and again, Not just needing to go, but desiring to go into the desolate place, the Eremon, to commune with God, often before the sun even rose, to dwell with God, to be formed and to commune with him. And I would guess if we went around the room and told stories of formative times, we would describe them often like a desolate place, a desert wandering, in uncertainty, leaving one place to another whether it was more symbolic and spiritual or whether it was actual in our transformation or migration. God seems to meet us in those places where resources might be thin or few or far between, where the next steps might be uncertain and unknown to us. Will we step in faith and walk with Him and pursue Him and find Him and commune with Him? Is it that we need to remove those superfluous things in order to hear clearly from God. But this is a storyline that I believe runs not just through Scripture, but into our own very spiritual lives as well. And John records Jesus making the absolute clear connection between the story of God that is true for all of His peoples and what He was revealing. Coming shortly on the heels in John chapter 6 of this same event being recounted, Jesus says to His disciples and to really others who are listening, This is John 6, 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Referring to the manna that came every day in those 40 years for God's people, their daily bread. For the bread of God, though, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And those listening said to him, Sir, give us this bread, always. Jesus said to them, I... Am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What Jesus was saying was just as God provided for his people in the wilderness in Exodus with bread every day, manna from heaven, quail by night to sustain them, water when when they were parched and thirsty, even from a rock, or bitter made sweet, how he sustained them, led them, dwelled with them defended them and protected them, fought for them, rested upon them in the cloud. He even sustained their clothing and their shoes so they would not wear out. That all of those very tangible, very real, very needed, life-giving signs, Jesus said, were ultimately to prove that Jesus fulfills all of our needs, all of our hunger, all of our thirst, all of our provision. And while his desire is to do so abundantly, to give good gifts to all of his children in every way, that we would lack nothing, the primary emphasis is spiritual. And we're certain of that when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, the bread from heaven. He pressed them, he challenged them, he said, take and eat even of me, so that so many wrestled with the depth of what he was saying that they left him in that moment. But those that drew near and those that remained found life in his name and life abundantly. And this is his promise and his offer for us as well, for all who would hunger and thirst and come to him to find our health, our wholeness, our healing, our satisfaction in him alone, in no other person or thing, God or idol, pleasure or power, which can never ultimately satisfy, may only temporarily fill or even numb. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, this might be an odd one to go to at this point. It'll make sense maybe in a moment, but he seemed to get this. What I find striking is that Jethro was a pagan sorcerer, a magi, a magician, similar to those that Moses and Aaron would have confronted in Pharaoh's court, if you know that story. He becomes his father-in-law, and he becomes ultimately a worshiper of God, Yahweh, and a priest of Yahweh, a pretty amazing transformation. Exodus 18 Verse 8, this is shortly following the tremendous events in Egypt, the exodus through the parted Red Sea, and now as God is starting to provide for them through the manna, through the quail, and through the water, it's just before Moses will dwell with God on Sinai and receive his commandments. Moses tells his father-in-law, Jethro, Exodus eighteen eight, all that the Lord has done, all that he did to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, for Israel's sake, about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things that the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. And he said, praise be to the Lord, to Yahweh, who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and from Pharaoh, and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all other gods. Why go here? Probably because it's fresh in mind for me. As many of you know, I'm journeying... Through Exodus at a very slow pace, walking through Exodus. I committed at the beginning of the year to a daily walk, 2021 steps. It's about a mile. Some of you are journeying along with me, either in the commitment to that daily walk, because Jesus was a walking rabbi. And so much of his formation and discipleship with his followers happened on the road in those faces that are never really described for us in Scripture. But when we start to understand geography, and it says they went from Galilee to Capernaum, or down, or up to Jerusalem, simply because it was raised and elevated, In that one line is an entire day or two of travel through the desert roads. And we have to imagine in the in-between lines, what happened in those places formed from what we know of Jesus. When he was with people, how he taught, how he communed, But with those disciples, that was the intense formation of their journey. Jesus, a walking rabbi. And so the journey to walk daily, to meditate, to pray, not a walk for exercise, but contemplation, spiritual exercise, and also believing that 2021 was going to be a long road, uncertain. Felt like Exodus kind of matched that journey. So just thought I would read slowly through daily a chapter again and again, letting it prompt prayers and reflections. And then that, that I've been vlogging on it. I'm not really sure why, but I am. I'm a journaler, and I thought, you know, I've never done a, a video journal, a video blog. And so thank you for the three that are still hanging on to the journey. It's really not done for you so much, maybe I should say. It's done for a record. It's done for me, maybe for my kids as much as anything who aren't following along with me in this journey yet. Well, they are, but not the way that is intentionally discipleship. But if it blesses if it encourages, we're 164 days in, not even halfway. So it's a great time to jump in. Maybe I can get my subscribership up to four. (laughs) Who's going to join? No. We are walking slowly, but I found in that profound, slow journey through God's story repeatedly, it's amazing what comes to mind, what comes off the page, so to speak, to reflect and ponder on And really, I would invite you to do the same in your own journey. Whether or not you follow along mine, make it your own. Walk with Jesus. Follow him. Be in his word, his story daily. Invite him to speak through it to our present and engage him. So that's probably why Exodus 18 and Jethro was top of mind. But really amazing just to hear the testimonies of what God had done and come to worship Yahweh when you are so far from him. Our world every one of us included, is hungry and longing to be filled and satiated, satisfied. And we all know that. But our world and the things that it provides leave us empty and ultimately unsatisfied, wanting more. That's not a new concept. And we probably can point to so many examples in our own lives. But from the Psalms, and we could read many different passages, but from a few highlights in Scripture And then since Scripture, Psalm 42, verse 1, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. There's a longing and a hunger and a desire for, for more in our world that is ultimately met in God alone. James, chapter 4, verse 1, takes a slightly different, harsher angle on the longing of our own heart and soul to be filled and satisfied. He says, what causes fights and quarrels and divisions amongst you? Do they not come from your desires that rage within you? You want something, but you can't have it or enough of it. So you kill, you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel, you fight. You do not have because you do not seek God and ask him. And if you do, you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. This hunger and thirst and longing to be filled and satisfied by earthly things, will never be satiated, and it will lead to all forms of brokenness and division and quarrels and fights. St. Augustine, the fourth century theologian, called this hunger or longing a restlessness. In his famous prayer and confessions, God, you have made us for yourself. O Lord, our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Blaise Pascal, French philosopher, mathematician, theologian from the 1600s, only lived to be 39 years old. He said, he described this hunger, this longing as like an abyss or an emptiness, a hole within every person, craving to be filled, always striving to fill it with any number of things or experiences, peoples, or pleasures, but it can only be filled and satisfied with God himself. Others have summarized Blaise Pascal's pontificating as a God-shaped hole within each of us, or a vacuum that we need to be filled. And Jesus, when using the imagery and the metaphor of bread of life, I am the bread of life, the only one that truly satisfies, and connecting it to his actual abundant provision is to make this perfectly clear for those that would follow him, that he alone satisfies. Every earthly bread or thing only fills for a time and satiates for a time. He alone is our satisfaction interesting that verse 42 in Mark 6 says specifically, they all ate and were satisfied, and there was an abundance left over? Deuteronomy chapter 8 is a powerful chapter, and I'll read an extension of it in a moment. But chapter 8, verse 3 describes this concept without using the name of Jesus, it describes the word being our fulfillment, and John. The gospel writer would connect the logos, the word, to Jesus himself as the word of God. Listen to, eight, to Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. The Lord has humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known. And he did this to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We know that Jesus would quote that very phrase from Deuteronomy 8 to Satan when he said, just make some bread. You're hungry. Give in to your own desires, your own feelings. How wrong could it be? God's given you this authority. He cares for you. All of those lies of the enemy that would have swirled and been a part of that to justify not trusting God. And what does Jesus say? Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's where our dependence is is our longing, our spiritual hunger, our spiritual longing is meant to instruct us. God did this that you would be hungry and then he fed you with manna daily, just enough, enough to fill you, but not enough to sustain you. He is your sustenance. He has preserved you. That's the whole Israelite journey for those 40 years. There's no reason they should have been sustained and survived on meager bread from heaven and quail at night. God did that. God sustained them. And it was to instruct them of where their sustenance came from. The discipline of fasting that we follow today is meant to do the very same, to make us physically hungry and therefore be top of mind why we are hungry in a spiritual sense. Paul teaches on this theme consistently, perhaps the most concisely in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 and following. What is more, Paul says, I consider everything in this world as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish, filth, that I might gain Christ, be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law or obedience but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I'm not sure if there's any more pressing concern or issue for us who now find ourselves living in one of the most affluent, consumeristic societies in all of history. Relatively, everything is at our fingertips, both literally within grasp, or mouse click, or tap, or swipe. And if it's not, we can easily imagine it. A time in not too distant future where we can attain almost anything our heart or our appetite might desire. It is within reach, in an unprecedented way throughout history, for this society and this culture. Delayed gratification is a foreign concept to this culture. And yet, with that abundance and that affluence and that ability to attain and consume and be filled and be satiated by whatever desire we might have, are we a people content, at rest, at peace, and filled Satisfied. Can we say with Paul these words he proclaimed in Philippians 3? Can we say as he continues in Philippians chapter 4 verse 11, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Remind you that he is writing those words in chains, chained to a Roman soldier awaiting likely execution from Nero. And he is writing these words. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then he says, how? I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Why does Jesus teach us to pray in the famous Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread? clearly hearkening back to Israel's wandering of the daily manna where God was forming their faith in his provision and his provision alone. Israel was instructed to not gather more manna than they needed for that day and for every person in their household. Why would God do that? Why would God not simply fill their jars with grain every morning refreshed in a miraculous way? There's evidence through his scripture story that that is not a hard thing for God to do. So that everyone simply had what they needed within their own tent. Why provide in abundance where there would be leftovers and waste ultimately, although the scripture says that manna simply almost dissolved like like dew as the heat of the day came on the land. So it did disappear. But God provided in abundance of bread and then said, restrict yourself and only gather what you need for today. Just as Jesus, in this account in Mark, provided far more bread and fish than the 5,000 needed, and everyone ate to their fill, and as I've preached before, likely stuffed their cloaks and jackets when food scarcity and hunger was 80% of their income to provide for their food and family. And now an abundance is coming to us freely. You don't think they loaded up? And there were still 12 basketfuls to abundance, the superfluous nature of God's provision in Christ. Why would God do this and not simply provide enough when he says, trust me for tomorrow? Because you know what happened in the story. If they gathered more manna, the next day it was moldy and maggoty. Except on the day before the Sabbath, when they could provide two days worth and it was sustained. God had the power to sustain, to provide, and yet let it wear out. Because God always invites us into provision, into his provision. He always invites us into his abundance and his gifts. And he always invites us to trust him for enough. Our daily bread and enough for tomorrow. For tomorrow has enough worries of its own. And why do you think Jesus said in the great Lord's prayer, after the phrase, give us today our daily bread, Why is the next line, Forgive us our sin, God? Because we do not trust Him and take Him at His word. We always grasp for more and accomplish more, accumulate more, so that we can rely on the works of our own hands and not on the provision of God. Forgive us, Lord, our trespasses against You. Give us today our daily bread. Let's return to Deuteronomy 8, as I hinted at, and I'll relatively close with this extended passage. A warning from God regarding abundance, regarding affluence, which he loves to give to his children. It is his nature and desire to give abundantly. And I may press in on that theme more next week. This passage from Deuteronomy chapter 8 is 3,000 years old. And I don't know if there's a more relevant word to his church today and to us in this culture than this one. So while I could keep saying more words... God has already spoken. Will we hear and receive? Deuteronomy 8, verse 6. I will paraphrase in a couple places and, ed- and just and skip a couple verses. So if you want to follow along to keep me accountable, you're welcome to do that. Because Deuter- it is a long passage. The whole chapter is good. But Deuteronomy six eight six and following. Observe the commands that the Lord your God has given you today, walking in His ways and revering Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and pools of water, with springs flowing in the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. Remember, spoken to a people that is meagerly having to survive by bread from heaven and they're longing for this abundance. Imagine how they would receive that. You will lack nothing. When you have eaten, When you are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. But be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to worship him and to obey him and trust him. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build yourselves fine houses and you settle down, and when your possessions are abundant, and when your silver and gold increase, and all that you have is multiplied, Because this is God's desire for you, for his children, for all eternity. Then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God, who has delivered you from Egypt, who has rescued you out of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, the thirsty and waterless land, which is with its venomous snakes and scorpions, all its dangers and evil. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known. He did this to humble you, to test you, so that in the end it might go well with you. You may find yourself sane, but it's my power. It's the strength of my hands that have produced this wealth for me. Remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you any ability to produce wealth. And He confirms His covenant, which He swore to your forefathers, as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and you follow other gods, worship and bow down to them, give yourselves to other things and other pursuits to be satiated and filled by them, I testify against you today, you will have gained the whole world and yet forfeited your soul to destruction. Bringing in Jesus' words in paraphrase. God desires to give abundantly to his children. It's his nature. It's his desire. He also knows that it's not always to our good. When Jesus said it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, he didn't mean escape the fires of hell. He meant to walk in the kingdom of God, to be satisfied in him alone and his daily provisions. And that man went away sad because he had great earthly wealth. Our contentment we must grow to find our contentment in Christ alone, in God alone, not in earth, any earthly provision or possession, pleasure, or power. How can we do that? Jesus informs us by his model, one that we would strive to in every way, but very briefly as we respond. When Jesus receives the bread and the fish, he takes them. So here's God's provision. Whether Whatever, whether God has given us what might seem meager, not enough by world standards or our culture's standards, and we look around and we say, all I have is a crust of bread. Or whether he has poured into our laps in abundance like we could have never imagined. That we thought if we had this kind of wealth today, 20 years ago, we would be fully satisfied, needing nothing else. It's more than we could have ever imagined. And we're striving for more, aren't we not? So whether in abundance or whether it's meager, we receive with open hands. Here is God's gift, and our response is gratitude. Our response is thanksgiving. Our response is blessing and worship. God, thank you. And what he does next is he breaks the provision. This earthly provision that God has given, I break. I break that it has any hold on me. I break and I distribute. I break and I give. In the act of giving, in the act of sharing, I break its hold on me and I give to others in need because it is far greater to give than receive. In that act of giving that also breaks earthly possessions hold on us, that blesses others in the kingdom work of God, as we heard last week from John, we also know that is where God does his multiplication. As we break and we give, he multiplies. That's God's desire. He loves to give more. It is to God's love and grace that he pours out in abundance, and it is to God's love and grace that he takes away. Give us today, God, our daily bread. We receive, we give thanks. Help us break it, both for any hold it has in our hearts and souls, but also that we might distribute and give to those in need. And it will run out if you don't multiply it, Lord. Help us see those in need and give generously as you freely give to us. Teach us to be content whether we have much or little. Just as your Apostle Paul and those who followed you in the wilderness, who found you in the Eremon, those who followed you, Jesus, give to us this abundant, rich society and world that we live in. Help us never compare to others, but to you and your generosity alone. We receive, Lord. Help us respond in a way that gives you glory and praise and grows our faith evermore. Amen.